I'm Carol Mark, and I'm the photographer and curator at 183 Queen Street East, www.amazingmosspark.ca. Today, I will be speaking with John Willis, a renowned documentary photographer and author who is currently exhibiting his work uh, in regards to the repatriation of items at Wounded Knee this past December 29th, 2022. Photography has the ability to change the world, and the photography of John Willis will intrigue you, pull the viewer in, and question who we are and what we're doing here and what's happening within that image. So, uh, before we begin, we'd like to take a moment to acknowledge the land that we're settling on and the broadcasting from today. We acknowledge the Indigenous bodies who have come before us to nurture, care for, and protect this land and who continue to do so today. We acknowledge that the land that we are on is the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the New Credit, the Anishabi, the Chippewa, the Hadusani, and the Wendat peoples. We also acknowledge that this home is home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit, and Métis people. So welcome. We have today John Willis, a world-renowned photographer uh, who I had the privilege of meeting in Wounded Knee in December 2022. So John is what I call a social documentary uh, photographer, and John is talking to me uh, from his home in the U.S., and we're going to touch on many aspects that are important to him as a photographer, as a teacher, as a mentor, and as a communicator from the subjects and the ones that he shoots to the viewer. Now, one of the things that was remarkable when I read something about John was that he wants to continue to make work searching for meaning and purpose. What I love about that is the word meaning and purpose, because in this society, we also strive for things that aren't meaningful and purposeful. So welcome, John. Thank you, Carol. I appreciate the opportunity to be here and to share in this conversation. Um, I think we're all searching for meaning and purpose in one way or another. And um, yeah, it's always good to find like-minded people to have discussions with and help each other find more value in what we do. Now, how did a young man growing up in the Connecticut suburbs end up taking photos of Pine Ridge, South Dakota? Because we met on a very, very cold morning in December uh, 29th, 2022, which was uh, the 132nd anniversary at the massacre of Wounded Knee. And there I saw somebody else carrying a camera. And I thought, who is that? And we got to meet and learn about each other that day. Well, it, it's a long story with lots of life travels, but um, I started photographing in high school back in 1973, and it was in 1992, a friend in Vermont, I was living in Vermont, told me that she was going to visit an elder on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation, and she thought that I would really like this man, and he would really like me, and I should come out and meet him. And my family at the time and I were already packed up to go to Canada, actually, to do some documentary investigative work around the building of the Hydro-Quebec Dam and the 
the relocation of Cree and Inuit people for that dam. And we had no connections there. We were just going to go do it because we had heard about this, um, this horrible kind of relocation of people again. And um, just the fact that what she told about him and the connection to him, we decided to head west rather than north. And we drove 2,000 miles west to Pine Ridge Reservation and ended up camping on his property for a month. And I've never stopped going back ever since in contact with his family weekly, if not almost daily, and really connected to the people and the history and the culture. It's a magical place. A lot of challenging history, a lot of troubling situations, but a lot of beauty and culture. And it was something that I was just very drawn to. And the first 10 years or so, I really just stayed with him and his family and extended communities, Tioshpaye, which is like an extended family on the property there, and didn't travel around the reservation, but became very connected to all the people I met there. And then as he passed on, I around the time that he had passed on, I began teaching on the reservation and became much more connected with wider community and traveling around to much broader places, all communities around the reservation, teaching at different schools and so forth. And so started getting to know people all over and becoming more politically involved and culturally involved in an extended way. And that's probably enough of a story to answer how I ended up meeting you out there. So uh, let me clarify, this family that you stayed with was Eugene Redis. He was a Lakota elder. So is that the person you had stayed with and befriended and actually had your connection with uh, Pine Ridge Indian Reservation? Yeah, he was Eugene Redis, comes out first. He came from the Rosebud Reservation, but he married Ellen Hollowhead, who was on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation. And I met him when he was living there. He was 73 at the time I met him. And he passed away in his 80s, about 10 years later. And we had spent a lot of time together. He he welcomed in the later years of his life, he welcomed people from all across the world. He loved meeting other people and getting to know people. So um, we had long periods of time where we would spend together with large groups of people in the summer during ceremony season and when lots of people would come and camp in his yard. And then in the winter, we would sit around quietly around his home, maybe the two of us or a small group of people. And and lots of time in between gathering firewood and helping prepare for the winter months and so forth. So I note that uh, with your photography, you've actually published a number of books. One of them is Views from the Reservation. And actually, this was a request to use the photographs to help a Lakota elder and his family. So I think that that is so very important because not only are you helping with the proceeds 100% donated, but also you're a storyteller. And that's a tradition that's in uh, the uh, Indigenous people. They are storytellers. And you're continuing that through visual storytelling. Yeah, well, I hope I'm trying to continue it. Um, So I am a photographer. I learned through seeing and photographing. I've had learning disabilities when I was growing up. So learning to read and write was not as simple to me as images. I, I came more naturally to that. And when I met Eugene, um, I was already a photographer, but I, I felt very distant from the, you know, I was an outsider. I did not feel like it was my place to come in and start carrying a camera and taking pictures right away. So I came in and I did not photograph him and his family or his culture and community in that first month that I was out there. 
But I also wanted him to know who I was and I did not want to hide anything. So I let him know right away from the very beginning that I was a photographer. That's how I made my living teaching photography in the East in a college. But every day I would I would just spend time with him and his family and getting to know them and trying to do things that I could to give back as they were giving me all kinds of opportunities. But I wouldn't photograph. And every day there would be a certain point in the day where I might go off and he lived on the edge of the reservation. And I would, I would take my camera and I'd tell him I was going to go and go photograph in the landscape. And he, he lived on the edge of the Badlands National Monument. And I would go over to the Badlands and do landscape photographs and come back and then do other things with his family, but not bring my camera out around the family. And then the last day I was there, I asked him if he would want to sit for a portrait because I noticed they didn't have many photographs, but they really cherished them. Um, and he sat for a, a portrait with an 8 by 10 inch view camera with his adopted niece, who was 55 at the time, Victoria. And I took one photograph, actually two negatives of the situation. And when I got home, I printed it up and liked the picture and thought he would too. And I made him a whole bunch of copies because I thought he would want to give them out maybe to relatives and mailed him a box of prints. And the next year he had invited me back. And the next year when I came back, Every day he would have his son, who was my age, come over in the morning and at, to my tent, ask me if I could bring my camera that day to photograph this person or that person or this thing and that thing or this event. And each day there would be a list of different things that he wanted photographed. So gradually, as I was spending more and more time with the family, I was being asked to photograph more and more of life. Um, and there were definitely things that he didn't ask me to photograph, but there were a lot of things that I would. And I would always give him photographs. But for those 10 years, those photographs were just um, they were for his family and they were for our mutual friends, but they didn't get published or exhibited and so forth. Yeah. So it's very interesting. I remember going there about 14 years ago and landing at uh, Wounded Knee. And unfortunately, you know, that part of history is not that well known, even here uh, in Canada. So uh, when I was there, there was still the roundhouse and it was still occupied by one of the members of AIM. And they were still speaking to tourists. So now they're in another step. I think this is the return of the items that were stolen off the bodies, which were sacred and personal. Uh, these victims that were massacred, it's actually one of the largest massacres noted in uh, U.S. history. And actually, they were robbed. Apparently, when they were digging the grave, they actually took the possessions and they put them in another hiding spot and came back for them later. And as I understand, um, those items, as part of their traditional history, should be burnt or disposed of in their way. And I note that you took the photographs as a document uh, photography for the tribe for this exhibit that we have of the day of the return of the items and a few portraits, and you haven't uh, provided any of the personal objects because that's to honor um, their traditions. But we wanted to acknowledge that this healing has started and this acknowledgement through um, the museum and hopefully the U.S. government that this is a step for the people to heal. Yeah, I'm. I'm not sure how far back, honestly, People have been trying to get these items back. You know, they were stolen in 1890. You and I both know that it's at least 30 years that Lakota people have been trying to get items given back from the museum with the help of non-Native people. And the, the efforts have been tried at 
different times by different people at different amounts. I first learned of them when I was teaching with a Lakota elder, Leonard Littlefinger, who you knew in 2015. He he learned that one of the youth and facilitators in the group that we were teaching came from near Barry, Massachusetts, where these items were housed. And he almost broke down in tears as he was telling us about this collection and asking people, if at all possible, go see the collection, try and make photographs of the collection. He was telling us they wouldn't want us to photograph them there because they were they didn't want people to know about it. They didn't want the pictures to get out. They didn't want a catalog coming back to the Lakota people because it would make it easier for them to fight to get the items back. But how important it was to get them back, that he was a descendant of survivors and that uh, all of descendants of survivors wanted these items back. They were the spirits were caught up um, not being able to go home and be released because these bodies of murdered people had been, you know, tormented by their items being taken and they just really needed to be released. And he was pleading with us to try and help that happen. And ever since that point in 2015, I had joined with others and we were trying to find ways to negotiate with the small town museum board to to allow more Lakota people and others to come see them more frequently, to catalog the items, to let them be photographed so the families of descendants and the tribal members would be able to make a catalog. All the families would know what was there. They would have an easier time negotiating for the return and to help really get the items back. And And it was a very slow process. As you know, they um, they really didn't want to give them back. There were, there were people in the museum who believed that as historians, they were preserving history by keeping these items there. And since they were part of their their small town library since over 100 years, 130 years, they felt like they had some kind of ownership over them and they were protecting history. And the fact, as you say, that Lakota tradition is that the items would be burned or buried to help release the spirits and ceremony. They thought, oh, that was sacrilege. That was, you know, not historically correct. That would that would ruin history, not help it. And so they were trying to fight to keep the items or at least that's what we were being told. So it, it was really an emotional, tormenting situation. They came around in the end, I believe, at least most of them, to believing that, yes, they really needed to let go of these items and stop feeling like they had ownership. And as part of that process, we did take all of the items out of the cases with Lakota people there We who knew what the items were. They knew enough of the culture and the history to know what they were for and be able to tell which items really were Lakota. We photographed them all so the tribes and the survivors of descendants associations would be able to identify them. That helped with the negotiations and getting the items back. So, And now they have the items back, which is, I think, wonderful. And the Lakota people decided they were going to not do anything for a full year as far as releasing and having ceremonies, because there's there's so many people, so many families, and even people from different reservations who are involved, that they were going to take their time, and they were not going to rush, and they were they committed to taking at least a year to discuss things, to make sure all the families that wanted to could see the items, could um, pray over the items, could be part of the conversations and negotiations, and then they'll decide afterwards what will be the final outcome. 
whether everything gets released to the spirits, whether some things are kept, whether replicas are made for museums and education or or whatever. Um, but I think it's, what's really exciting is that these decisions are being made by the Lakota people and not outsiders. Yes, that that's important. I, I mean, it's funny, you know, their oral histories. I met Leonard uh, Littlefinger with Kathleen Price uh, from the Mission of Love. I was there helping Kathleen. Kathleen has been very involved in the uh, reservation. It, it is truly incredible that the Lakota people have kept their faith to actually come to this point that they can actually have healing and perhaps move forward. We have the photographs if people are interested in just seeing the day and just a little bit of the history. And it's going to be a part of contact photography. You can check on the website at www.amazingmosspark.ca. And the interesting part about John is that he hasn't really talked about it. And I want him to talk about this a little bit more. He does a photographic youth arts program. And uh, that gets youth involved on um, different cultural aspects, uh, bringing them together. So, John, you want to share a little bit about that? Well, I appreciate you bringing it up. Um, it's We're in an in-between stage, or I should say I'm in an in-between stage. The first year that I started going to the reservation was a big year in my life. It was the first year I started teaching at Marlboro College, a small liberal arts college in southern Vermont, where I taught for 31 years. It folded um, and became part of Emerson College during COVID. And I, it was also the first year that I started, co-founded the Insight Photography Project, a youth all-volunteer program in Southern Vermont, which was supposed to last for one month and is still going 32, 33 years later. And as part of that, my college students and the youth program Insight and I created an, a cross-cultural youth arts program. The Exposures Cross-Cultural Youth Summer Arts Program was a month-long and summer intensive where we would bring youth together from very diverse backgrounds, as diverse as we could get. So we had racial diversity, we had white, black, Hispanic, um, native youth, we had wealthy kids, we had poor kids, we had urban, rural, agnostic, very religious, all types. And we'd, we'd get together and we'd spend three weeks using photography and other art mediums, but mostly photography and, and video and multimedia. And we would learn about culture and diversity and sense of place and family and tradition. And we'd make art while living together and learning about culture and tradition. And it was wonderful. Um, sadly, with COVID, it kind of ended, at least it took a hiatus. And now if it happens again, it will happen in a new way. But we would travel um, often, most often we would go to Pine Ridge Indian Reservation, but we would bring youth together for three weeks, like I said. Sometimes it happened in New York City, sometimes it happened in Vermont. And it was really about learning to um, not only tolerate diversity, but truly appreciate diversity. And it was through that program that I learned to work with Leonard Littlefinger and learned about this um, this collection that was at Barry Mass. And, and I was able, when we brought the program to New York and Vermont, we were able to bring youth from this exposures program to Barry, Massachusetts and have in-depth conversations with the museum people about the implications of the owning, feeling like they own these items, these sacred items 
of people's past, these stolen items of people's families in the collection. And it was so moving to be there with youth who turned out some of the youth who were there, some of the indigenous youth from the Dakotas had relatives who were had their pictures and family items in these glass cases and these collections. So um, they were able to stand up and and speak for their their relations and their heritage. It was really moving. But um, yes, working with youth is something that I find really inspiring. I teach college. That's what, what I've done for four decades for a living. And I love teaching in college, but I also have taught everything from kindergarten to nursing home age people on the side. I just love storytelling and I love people and, and um, you know, getting people together of all different ages is great. Have you thought of doing anything in Canada, John? Well, that's where I was going when I ended up at Pine Ridge. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you have to take another detour and head back up here because we're multicultural. We have a lot of stories. We have stories on migration, on displacement, uh, war, everything. And Canada is going through. So I'm just going to, we have a few minutes left. I want to ask you in terms of, with your photography, what's the thing that you hope that the viewer, when they look at your photograph, takes away with them? Oh, that's a hard question. But I think I would, I would at the moment, I would answer by saying that we all have a sense of responsibility to each other and to the world around us to try and contribute in a positive way to what goes on now and what will go on in the future that we we really do have a sense of responsibility in it and we can't just feel that oh others will fix it or others will take care of it we we owe to the world so thank you john for your time and i hope that people either visit the exhibit or go on your website to check because your work is truly amazing. It has moved me. When I'm standing in front of it, I can feel the energy. And I have sensed that too. I'm standing there as a witness. And it allows me to be in that place, even though I am not present. You have allowed me to stand in that place, visualize it, and to make my own decisions in the world. So thank you. Thank you for the work that you're doing and all the people you're connected to as well. Each one of us can contribute a little bit. If enough of us do, we can make a difference. Thank you so very much. That's John Willis, and you can go check on his website. It is www.jwillis.net. Drop him a note and maybe ask him to invite him to back to Canada <laughs> without taking a detour. Thank you so very much. Thank you. I really like Canada, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Bye.